On the 25th of January, Scots all over the world celebrate Burns Day, their tribute to Scotland's national bard. John Pollock is a former school teacher and trade unionist, and like many Scots, he has a lifelong love of Burns, whom he sees as being important not just as a poet, but as a personality, as a man who became a legend even before he had died. Maybe that explains why Burns' immortal memory is still celebrated in Scotland, in Canada, in America, and even, I'm told, in Russia. Burns' poems have been translated into almost every other language in the world, and um, as you say, his uh, his memory is celebrated there, although I have to say that I feel that it's only in his old Lowland Scots tongue, his Ayrshire uh, uh, dialect, that his true poetry can really be fully appreciated. Um, but on the other hand, it, it has had all his poems translated English into English too, uh, for the benefit of our brothers across the border, and mm -hmm. probably for a lot of Scots who have forgotten their own native tongue. Well, he was a, a ploughman poet, wasn't he? That was what he was he was dubbed as even in his own lifetime, which was is quite an unusual combination, a farmer and a poet. Yes, it is. I mean, as a, an educationist myself, I would love to claim him as a success for Scottish education, but he achieved his fame despite a scanty and intermittent formal education, and yet he was a very well-read man. For his day, he could... Uh, understand French and had a smattering of Latin. He had read deeply of other um, poets of not only of Scotland but of other countries. He was very well read indeed. Is it true that there is a statue of um, Robbie Burns in Red Square in Moscow? Well, I think nearly all statues in, in Russia have been uh, destroyed by now <laughs> since all the orthodoxies have gone. But what is certainly true is that uh, Burns' poems have been translated into Russian. Indeed, in 1945, in a youth delegation along with Jim Callaghan, I was able to meet the person who translated Burns' poems into Russian. And every year there are Burns suppers held there because I think it is his... Uh, the peasant poet, the ploughman poet's appeal to them that uh, has made him so attractive to the uh, Russian thoughts. And I think this will go on despite the fall of communism. I think it's related to the wider issues. And do you think this is what gives him his timeless appeal? Do you think this is why we're still celebrating uh, the immortal memory today, 1992? Well, it's interesting that one of his poems, A Man's a Man for All That, is seen as almost a, a, an, an anthem, world anthem of brotherhood. And yet in the first edition, or Chambers edition of Burns poems, it was described as poor poetry and embodying all the false philosophy of Burns and his time. The fact is that Burns was ahead of his time, and many of the ideas that he ex expressed are still so relevant today that that's probably why we so often tend to judge him against present-day standards rather than against his own background. We sleek it, cure timorous beastie. Oh, what a panic's in thy breastie. Thou needna start a wassy hasty with bickering brattle. I would be lathe to run and chase thee with murdering prattle. I'm truly sorry man's dominion has broken nature's social union and justifies that ill opinion which makes thee startle at me, thy poor earth-born companion and fellow-mortal. Thou saw the fields laid bare and waste, and weary winter coming fast, and cosy here beneath the blast thou thought to dwell, till crash the cruel coulter passed out through thy cell. But, Moosey, thou art no thy lane, in proving foresight may be vain. The best laid schemes o' mice and men gang after glay, and lee as knocked but grief and pain for promised joy. Still, 
Thou art blessed compared wi' me, The present only toucheth thee. But och, I backward cast my ee On prospects drear, And forward, though I canna see, I guess and fear. That poem, of course, was To a Mouse, and it's one of my very favourites, and I suppose as well it's the one that everybody knows. I think the reason that it's so striking is that in it Burns shows a real fellow feeling for all living creatures. Even though he himself is beaten down by hardship and drudgery, it's a real celebration of how the human spirit can still survive to guess and fear. Burns himself always identified with the weak and vulnerable in society, and even with the rebels. Macpherson was a highwayman who was hanged for his crimes, and before he went to the gallows, he wrote a tune for his fiddle. Burns wrote the words for it. Macpherson's time will not be long On yonder gallows tree Burns ended his life as he began it in poverty, but even so he was recognised as a great man while he was still alive. And although he was never rich, he did have a taste of the good life during two years which he spent in Edinburgh, where he charmed and entertained the Scottish aristocracy. He died when he was only 37, a failed farmer and excise man, but by that time he was famous all over the country as a poet, as a songwriter, a lover of many women, and especially as a spokesman for the times, the troubled times he was living in. Very often people tend to judge Burns today against present-day standards and present-day conditions when one thinks back to the years of which he was alive, that uh, there was very little public transport in the country, um, coal gas was being discovered in a neighbouring village, the first steamboat was being sailed in the Winston Loch at the time, um, you had the French Revolution taking part, place, the American War of Independence. There was still slavery in existence, for example, in the world. So it was a very different uh, society from what we're in now. And in Scotland here, there was a great deal of poverty, a great deal of injustice, and a great deal of hypocrisy in the church, for example. He got the inspiration for this next poem literally in a church. Now, Burns wrote lots of addresses to different things, to a daisy, to a haggis. He even wrote a poem to the toothache. This one is to a louse on seeing one on a lady's bonnet at church. Ah, where ye gain ye crowling fearly, your impudence protects ye sairly, I canna say, but ye strunt rarely your gauze and lace, though fates I fear ye dine but sparely on sick a place. Ye ugly, creepin', blasted wonner, detested, shunned by saunt and sinner, how dare ye set your fit upon her, say fine a lady? Gae somewhere else and seek her dinner on some poor body. Now hoard ye there, you're out of sight, below the fatrels, snug and tight. Now fate ye yet, 
you'll no be right till ye've got on it the very topmost towering height of Mrs. Bonnet. Oh, Jenny, dinna toss your head and set your beauties o'er a bread. Ye little ken what cursed speed the blast is makin'. The winks and finger ends I dread are notice taken. Ah, would some power the gifty gie us to see ourselves as others see us. It would frae money a blunder free us and foolish notion, for airs and dress and gait would lee us and even devotion. He used satire against the hypocrisy and the injustice he saw, and it was a devastating weapon. It had a tremendous effect. It's interesting, of course, that in his attacks on religious orthodoxy at the time, on the hypocrisy, on the bigotry, he nevertheless gained a lot of support from liberal uh, members of the clergy, from ministers who themselves uh, felt that the church was speaking with one voice and behaving in a different way itself in relation to people. This was the difference between the old light and the new light, wasn't that, it? That's right. The new lights were liberal clergy, whereas the old lights were holding very much to religious orthodoxy. They love to denounce people for uh, even the slightest uh, stepping aside from the path of righteousness. They were very rigid about the Sabbath and about the observance of the Sabbath. And uh, in many ways, they offered little hope to a uh, peasant country in which so many people were suffering from hardship and poverty and needed a little bit of Christian charity rather than the kind of harsh type of religion being offered to them. Burns himself had to sit on the cutty stool. That was the little milking stool that sat at the foot of the minister's pulpit and in which he had to sit and do penance while the minister denounced him in front of the whole congregation. Um, Burns uh, was resilient enough to take this, but he felt great pity for many others he saw going through this process. This was for fornication? Yes, it was. Burns, of course, uh, wrote his first poem when he was 15 years of age, and that was to a, a young girl in, he, he saw in the, the fields at the harvest time. Uh, but when he was 25 years of age, that was the first time he really stepped over the line, and there was an illegitimate child. This is where Burns was a bit different from uh, people of his time in that he rejoiced in this, he wrote poems about it, he told people about his transgressions, and in fact he wrote a poem of welcome to the love-begotten child and um, uh, said in that poem his promise of uh, being a loving father. And this was a, an interesting thing that he seemed to see no difference between the illegitimacy and legitimacy and loved the children uh, that were his offspring. Those welcome ween, me shanta for me, the thoughts of thee or yet thy mammy shall ever daunt in me or awe me, my sweet wee lady. Or if I blush when thou shalt call me, Taita or daddy. Welcome, my bonny sweet wee doctor, though ye come here a wee unsought for, Though you come and I have fought for baith kirk and quarrier, yet by my faith you're no one wrought for that I shall swear. Though I should be the war bestead, thou's be as braw and beanly clad, and thy young years as nicely bred wi education, as ony brat o wedlock's bed in all thy station. And if thou be what I wad hae thee, and tak the counsel I shall gie thee, 
I'll never rue my trouble wi thee, the cost nor shame o't, but be a loving father to thee and brag the name o't. He never denied responsibility for any of his children, did he? he Far from denying it, he actually tended to write poetry about it. He often he told the stories himself and he often exaggerated them. Uh, but at the end of the day, he would, I think, be the last person who would want anyone to whitewash uh, the style of life he had had. And I think possibly part of a problem that we do have today is the tendency often too much to concentrate on aspects of Bun's lifestyle when, in fact, what he has left is this heritage of songs and poems. There's a lot of criticism of Robert Burns, but he wrote his own epitaph when he said, the poor inhabitant below was quick to learn and wise to know, and keenly felt the friendly glow and softer flame, but thoughtless follies laid him low and stained his name. As he did father 15 children, nine of them illegitimate, his reputation as a womaniser obviously wasn't just hearsay. And of course, this didn't do him any good in the eyes of the church elders, who were powerful men and narrow-minded. Burns wasn't above making his point with the odd personal attack, which in fact was something he was really quite good at. Well, of course, uh, uh, Holy Willie has been immortalised in Burns' poem, and... uh, Burns himself also wrote the address to the Uncle Gid. That was to all of them when he said, Oh, ye who are, say, gid yourself, say, pious and say, holy. You've not today but mark and tell your neighbours thoughts and folly. It's quite amazing to think of um, Holy Willie, who, um, of course, was a real person, wasn't he? He was an elder. He was a real person. He was an elder, and um, his poem is now one that is recited at almost every Burn supper. And the fascinating thing is that Burns seemed to be able to uh, reduce an individual to an object of ridicule, and yet that individual was so proud that a poem had been written about him that he was showing Holy Willie was known to show it around and be pleased to hear himself being referred to. Is that right? (laughs) O thou that in the heavens dost dwell... For as it pleases best thyself, sends ain to heaven and tender hell, all for thy glory, and know for only good or ill they've done before thee. I bless and praise thy matchless might, when thousands thou hast left in night, that I am here before thy sight, for gifts and grace, a burning and a shining light to all this place. But yet, O Lord, confess I must, at times I'm fashed with fleshly lust, and sometimes too in worldly trust, vile self gets in. But thou remembers we are dust, defiled we sin. O Lord, the stream thou kens we meg, thy pardon I sincerely beg. O may it ne'er be a living plague to my dishonour, and I'll ne'er lift a lawless leg again upon her. Lord, bless thy chosen in this place, for here thou hast a chosen race. But God confound their stubborn face and blast their name while bring thy elders to disgrace and open shame. But, Lord, remember me and mine, me mercies, temporal and divine, that I for grace and gear may shine, excel by name, and all the glory shall be thine. Amen. Amen. Even if Holy Willie himself missed the point, you can imagine that this sort of thing didn't make Burns many friends in high places, at least not in the church. 
His life was difficult now with money problems, uh, with failing health, and his love life rather messy, to say the least. After fathering one illegitimate child, he met and married Jean Armour in the old Scots manner in secret by declaration. You just said you were married and that was it. But when Jean's parents found out, they sent him packing, by which time Jean was pregnant and Burns had become betrothed to another woman, Highland Mary. This is a simplified version of the state of play when Burns was 27 years of age and the only solution he could see was, not surprisingly, emigration. His bags were actually en route for the boat to Jamaica when he got word that his first book of poems, which he'd published almost as a farewell to Scotland, had caused a great stir and that he was being heavily promoted in Edinburgh. That gave him the heart to stay in Scotland. Then, of course, on to greater production, moving round the countryside, writing more poems and speaking to people all over the country. He managed to do two tours of the highlands of Scotland and a tour of the border country and spent some time in Edinburgh society, and that was not such a productive period in his life. He was offered uh, jobs as um, a correspondent for a London magazine and things of this kind. Fortunately, he decided to return to Ayrshire and to the plough, and I think to his true vocation. And from there on, we had a, a further production of poetry, but also moving over on to the production of songs as well. You think this might be where his his greatest influence and his greatest uh, cultural gift to Scotland is? What happened in the latter years of his life when he was racked by rheumatic pain, when he was ill, when he was working as an exciseman down in Dumfrieshire, he was approached by the editors, the publishers of uh, Scottish songs and asked to help them make a Scottish collection. And the remarkable thing is that although he was living in very considerable poverty and ill health, uh, when he was asked about payment for this work, he said, in the honest enthusiasm with which I embark on this task, to talk of money, wages, fees or hire would be downright prostitution of the soul. He rescued old Scottish folk songs, he purified some, he uh, gave words to other tunes where the words had been lost, he developed new songs. He produced a heritage of well over 200 songs in his last and dying years. And any one of these written today would have produced a songwriter a fortune. A fond kiss. 
He wrote that for Agnes McElhose, or Clarinda as he called her, one of his many loves, whom he met during his time in Edinburgh. It's odd that a man who poured scorn on people who gave themselves airs and graces and who stood up for the common people should have fitted in so well with the life of the Edinburgh gentry and even revelled in it. Even so, he seems to have been able to enjoy the attention without losing himself in it completely. Sir Walter Scott met him just once when Scott was a boy and Burns made a deep impression on him. I should have taken the port had I not known what he was for a very sagacious country farmer of the old Scotch school... That is, none of your modern agriculturists who keep labourers for their drudgery, but the douce good man who held his own plough. His conversation expressed perfect self-confidence without the slightest presumption. I never saw a man in conversation with his superiors in station or information more perfectly free from either the reality or the affectation of embarrassment. I was told that his address to females was extremely deferential and always with a turn either to the pathetic or humorous which engaged their attention particularly. Over the centuries, with the way our uh, systems operate, all artists and even the greatest of musicians too have had to rely on patronage of one kind or another. And at the time when Burns was alive, he and his from the poor background, couldn't possibly have afforded to go forward into the publication of his poetry on any scale without some form of patronage. And the interesting aspect was that the, the type of social society that existed in Scotland at the time uh, put a high value upon poetry. It didn't, in fact, put a high value on songwriters, which was surprising. But the result was that Burns was welcome even though his poetry was of a rebellious nature, uh, to go into high society and to be feted by them. The great thing for, from Scotland's point of view is that Burns did that, he made a success of it, but had no hesitation in leaving it and returning to his native Ayrshire and then on to Dumfrieshire. His and father had actually been a gardener and had was, the, the house Burns was born in was built by his father's own hands and he was worn down by work and by poverty uh, so that there was never a great deal of money behind Burns and his brothers in seeking to set up a farm and any farm they got tended to be on poor, rocky ground and also to be undercapitalized, so that, in fact, uh, the, uh, there was little prospect of real success. And in addition to that, uh, Burns was working from morn to night on the farm, and, yet, and then all evening working on his poems and songs, so that it was a very tough existence he had. And indeed, uh, it was only through patronage that he managed to get this job with the excise down and Dumfries, and that at least gave him a degree of financial security, not riches, but a degree of financial security which allowed him then to freely give of his time out with his work to producing songs for, for Scotland. <laughs> Soon and Cluden's 
His decision to return to his roots wasn't so much because of a lack of success. In fact, he was almost too successful, and the round of parties and visits he got caught up in did little for his creative work. This letter, which he wrote from Edinburgh before he went back to farming and to Jean Armour, hints at the emptiness which he seemed to feel beneath the gaiety of the high life. I don't know how it is with the world in general, but with me, making my remarks is by no means a solitary pleasure. I want someone to laugh with me, someone to be grave with me, someone to please me and help my discrimination with his or her own remark, and at times, no doubt, to admire my acuteness and penetration. The world is so busied with selfish pursuits, ambitions, vanity, interest or pleasure, that very few think it worth their while to make any observation on what passes around them. Nor am I sure whether we are capable of so intimate and cordial a coalition of friendship as that one man may pour out his bosom, his very thought and floating fancy, his very inmost soul, with unreserved confidence to another, without hazard of losing part of that respect which man deserves from man, or of one day repenting his confidence. One of the fascinating things with all of these, you see, even all Lang Syne of this nature, all of the uh, these songs in the last years, were, it would be impossible to say whether the, uh, a song was 100% Burns or 1% Burns. There was so much uh, identified with the Scottish culture that what we have produced there is a, a situation in which uh, Burns songs and Scottish songs are almost synonymous. And uh, that is a part of his secret, that when we have a, a Burns night here, we're really having, what I've said before, a uniquely Scottish occasion. And at a time when radio, television, uh, being swamped with American soap operas or Australian soap operas, uh, so many small countries are losing part of their social culture. This is one of the areas in which we manage to keep it alive. Some, some of his, his love songs are the most beautiful and most well-known, and I suppose they may be ones, uh, for example, like the, the poems that he's written that, that were set to music that are more definitely authentic burns. Would you have a favourite among those? Oh, well, uh, there are so many so beautiful songs. Uh, I mean, I like of all the airs, the Wind Can Blow, which was his, his song to Jean Armour, but my love is like a red, red rose, I think cannot be surpassed in any love song throughout the world. Oh, my love is like a red, red rose That's newly sprung in June Oh, my love is like the melody that sweetly sung in tune As fair art thou, my bonnie lass So deep in love am I And 
Almighty till all the seas gone dry. Till all the seas gone dry, my love, and the rocks melt away the sun. While the sands of life shall run And fare thee weel, my only love And fare thee weel a while And I will come again, my love Though it were ten thousand It's interesting, you know, that Burns' teacher in his school at Ayr, in his report, said, Robert's ear was dull and his voice untunable. It was long before I could get him to distinguish one note from another. And yet later on, as a result of all these love songs you've mentioned, Walter Scott, Sir Walter Scott, another famous uh, author from Scotland, was able to say that no poet of our time ever displayed higher skill in marrying melody to immortal verse than did Robert Burns. Do you think we lionise him somewhat? Yes, I think the Burns himself uh, said an interesting thing. He said, a flatterer next to a backbiter is the most detestable character under the sun. <laughs> and frankly, at some Burns suppers, the people who are speaking uh, try to paint him as a, uh, as a saint with no blemishes at all, uh, make out, oh, it's almost idolatry. And I think that Burns would have found this a bit sickening. Um, I think Burns would have been happy that at the uh, Burns celebration, his songs and poems are heard. He wrote most of these songs and poems in the last few years of his life, when he was struggling with a failing farm, in poor health, and at the same time trying to support his family by working as an excise man in Dumfries. Eventually he had to give up the farm and work full-time in the excise, but even that didn't solve his financial problems. And he expresses his disappointment and his defiance in this letter which he wrote shortly before he died. Often in blasting anticipation have I listened to some future hackney scribbler with a heavy malice of savage stupidity describe Burns having been held up to public view and to public estimation as a man of some genius, yet quite destitute of resources within himself to support his borrowed dignity, dwindled into a paltry excise man and slunk out the rest of his insignificant existence on the meanest of pursuits and among the lowest of mankind. In your illustrious hands, sir, permit me to lodge my strong disavowal and defiance of such slanderous falsehoods. Burns was a poor man from his birth and an excise man from necessity, but I will say it, the sterling of his honest worth, poverty could not debase, and his independent British spirit... Oppression might bend, but could not subdue. And, of course, Burns was under tremendous pressures in other ways at that time, down in Dumfries, when he was writing these songs, because, because of his sympathies to the uh, French Revolution and the American War of Independence, he, of course, was running foul of the establishment. Indeed, as an excise officer, having helped in the confiscation of a barge that was smuggling, he then bought the carronades from it with a view to sending them to France. So you're sort of trying to run arms to... Yes, to just about, that, uh, uh, to support the storming of the Bastille. <laughs> and um, 
the result was that the commissioners uh, had him up before him in a very serious charge. Uh, and it shows the difference in our time scale because the serious charge was of having a leaning towards democracy. That could actually result in a death sentence. Now, Burns was fortunate that he had a lot of influential friends by this time, and that was avoided. But many others uh, throughout the country were sent to Botany Bay for much less than that. Uh, there were sedition trials taking place in in Edinburgh, Muir was sent to Botany Bay. It was the time when Thomas Paine's rights of man was were being proclaimed. And it was not an easy time in Scotland for somebody to be forcefully proclaiming the rights of ordinary individuals to certain basic human rights. Heard ye of the tree of France, and what ye what's the name of it? Around it all the patriots dance, will Europe kens the fame of it? It stands where Anse the Bastille stood, a prison built by King's man, when superstition's hellish brood kept France in leading strings, man. But vicious folk, I hate to see the works of virtue thrive, man. The courtly vermins banned the tree, and great to see it thrive, man. King Louis thought to cut it down when it was unco small, man. For this the watchman cracked his crown, cut off his head and all, man. We plenty of sick trees, I trow. The world would live in peace, man. The sword would help to mack a plough, the din of war would cease, man. Like brethren in a common cause, we'd on each other smile, man. And equal rights and equal laws would gladden every isle, man. Uh, in these times, uh, there was a need for an expression of the views of the ordinary people in the country, and Burns seemed to be able to understand and reflect the views, the hopes, the aspirations of ordinary people throughout the length and breadth of Scotland, and do it in such a, a way that it produced this great heritage of poems and songs. Interestingly, in Burns' day in his own native county, there was no newspaper. Indeed, it was after his death that the first newspaper was printed, and it was printed in the same printing presses that had uh, printed his poetry. The government at the time was anxious to suppress a free press. They put taxes on the press, they put an Edinburgh publisher into jail, and he died in jail. They fined even the editor of the London Times for criticising royalty at the time. So you can see how powerful the establishment was. But Burns, by writing in verse, easily understood verse, found a way in which it could be tr transmitted from person to person and understood by people. And the result was they turned into songs of liberty which influenced not only Scotland but the whole world. Indeed, it was Ralph Waldo Emerson, an American, who said of him that the Declaration of Independence and the Marseillaise are not more weighty documents in the history of freedom than the songs of Robert Burns. And these are the songs that you hear on Burns Day when they're sung at Burns suppers that are held all over the world. And the main keynote speech at those suppers is called The Immortal Memory. In every town and village, there will be several Burns suppers held. And the vast majority are not the ones held by the Burns clubs. And they vary considerably. Uh, they vary from the ones in which a lot of whiskey is consumed to the ones which are held in a church hall and are teetotal. Uh, I must admit that's not the kind I like to go to myself. But uh, they vary tremendously. At some, there may simply be a short uh, speech about Burns and then a lot of singing. And at some, there may be many toasts. But um, at all of them, 
people hear the songs and poems of Robert Burns. since I was at a burn supper, but I do remember that one of the things that used to happen was that the haggis was carried up to the top table in ceremonial procession, accompanied by the pipes. Oh, that's still done, because um, the, the, the haggis is uh, not the common food of today as it was in Burns Day, and therefore it, it makes uh, a special thing of the occasion, and of course Burns wrote that uh, magnificent poem, The Address to the Haggis, and that is recited at the beginning of each Burns supper. And from there on, there's normally a, a toast to the memory of Burns. You would have a toast usually to the lasses and a reply. But that, and it can go on from that. If it's a golf club, there'll be a toast to the golf club. <laughs> uh, if it's a bowling club, a toast to the bowling club. And usually you'll find possibly a toast to Old Scotia or something of the kind. Uh, very often, too, uh, people from abroad attend various bun celebrations here and they would then tend to be a, a toast to the guests from overseas. And uh, there's also a set menu, isn't there? Well, again, it, it varies a great deal. There, there's the traditional menu with the, the haggis and, and neeps and tatties, that's the turnips and potatoes. Cockaliki soup. And uh, normally cockaliki soup and then... You very often you go on from that to uh, steak pie and on to the bannocks, that's the large thick oat cakes with cheese and so on. But it now varies enormously and there's a tremendous flexibility about it. There are some where even they serve wine, whereas uh, one would assume that at most it would be the, the John Barleycorn, the, the good <laughs> Scotch whisky that they served. So his appeal really is, as you've suggested... Not, not just a Scottish appeal, although that too very much so, but it is universal, isn't it? It is a universal appeal. I think that the, um, the universality of his appeal comes largely from the songs of liberty and freedom. Is there for honest poverty that hangs its heat and other? The coward slave, we pass him by, we dare be poor for that. and that, the toils obscure and that. The rank is but the guinea stamp, the man's the goat for that. What though on Hamley fair we dine with hard and grey and that He fools their silks and knaves their wine A man's a man for that For that and that Their tinsel show and that 
Be honest, man, do well, say for us king of men for us. You see, on Berkey Cad, the Lord was trucks and stairs and all that. Though hunters work up at his work, he's but a coup for all that. For all that and all that, he's ribbon star and all that. The man of independent mind, he looks and laughs at all that. And um, although he may not have lived the perfect life himself, I think he expressed his own philosophy in these uh, two sentences. Whatever mitigates the wars or increases the happiness of others, this is my criterion of goodness. And whatever injures society at large or any individual in it, this is my measure of iniquity. But sense and worth or the earth shall bear the green and all that. For all that and all that, it's coming yet for all that. But man to man, the world shall brothers be for all that.